Creative Lifestyle Planning is proud to sponsor the award-winning Berkshire Football Stories podcast from Football in Berkshire. Creative Lifestyle Planning is a woking and based independent financial planning business who provide affordable, transparent financial planning for clients from all walks of life. Maybe you're saving for a property, planning for retirement, or would just like to save some money in a tax-efficient manner. Drop them a line on 0330-118-0210. That's 0330-118-0210 for a free initial consultation. And let them know Football in Berkshire sent you. Hello, Tom Canning here to introduce Football in Berkshire's interview podcast, Berkshire Football Stories. Every week, the award-winning Berkshire Football Stories podcast will bring you two great podcasts, our regular chat pod with myself, Abby Tysurst and host Rob Davis, as well as a second pod that will include an interview with someone from the world of Berkshire football. We have some great guests in the next few weeks, but up in the hot seat today is Reading FC Women Academy Manager, Rob Gear. If you like what you hear, make sure you hit subscribe and get the latest episodes every week and look us up on Twitter at FI Berkshire and on Facebook by searching Football in Berkshire. In the meantime, here's our interview with Rob. Rob, welcome. Hello, how are we? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Not at all, thanks for coming on. So just for a little context for everybody else, um, Rob has joined me as the Reading Women Academy Manager, but you have had a very exciting and interesting career, I think, up until this point. So the purpose of today is just to have a little chat about that, basically. I'm excited to get going. Perfect, yeah. I'm excited so, to have a chat. Yeah, absolutely. So let's kind of take it all the way back to, I mean, let's go all the way back to childhood. Like how, I guess you must have got involved in football fairly early on, considering the exciting career you've had. Let's kind of go back to there and maybe do a little sort of whistle stop tour of your playing career. Oh God. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. So I, I, um, my dad was a big football fan. He wasn't particularly good at football, but he was a big Liverpool fan. Um, so football was in the household from a young, from an early age. I actually didn't start playing um, until I was well a little bit later. Um, so I think I must have been about nine, ten, or ten years old, something like that. I joined Ascot United. Um, they were my they were my first club, um, and yeah, enjoyed my football, loved it. With a, we had a great group of boys. Uh, my dad was on the sideline. You know, kind of um, he was the man. He was the guy with the sponge that would run on for any injured players. Um, and then I got lucky enough when I was about thirteen. I got. Uh, I was lucky enough to be um, scouted by Wimbledon. Um, that was Wimbledon, old school Wimbledon, the crazy mm-hmm. gang era before they were MK Dons. Um, so I, I think I joined them when I was about 14, 15. Um, and I went through the went through the youth development program there. Um, lucky enough to, to keep making it through each year. And I, I got offered a YTS back, back then. So it wasn't Academy like it is now, but it was called the Youth Training Scheme. So I was a YT player. Um, and again, lucky enough to, to eventually make my debut 
um, for Wimbledon when I was about 19. So that was back in 2000. Um, I made my debut when I was 19 when Wimbledon were in the um, they were in the championship. So the year after they got relegated from the Premier League, that kind of afforded me an opportunity to to get into the team in the championship. And then I was there for about four years. And that was kind of the start of my professional career from there, really. Nice. Sounds cool. And then you kind of were here, there and everywhere for a couple of years, weren't you? I think you set six or seven other teams after that. Yeah, I mean, I, I stayed relatively local. I was, um, I, like I say, I was I was at Wimbledon for about four or five years. Um, we, I was part of the time when Wimbledon were going through a bit of a transitional period. So I was part of the team that... Um, um, like played the first game in Milton Keynes, for example. So I was part of that whole transitional period, which was a tough time for the club as a whole. Um, I left there. Um, my youth team manager at the time got the manager's job at um, a team called Russian and Diamonds um, down in League Two over in Northamptonshire. Um, and I was there for a couple of years before then dropping into the conference. And I played for a few local teams around this area. So I was at, I was at Woking for a bit. I was at Cambridge for a bit for for one season. Done, kind of done half a season at both places, um, and then I trialed at Aldershot um, the year after that. Um, and yeah, that was part of the um, promotion winning team there out of the conference into uh, back into the league. That was two thousand and seven, something like that. Two thousand and eight, I think. Um, so yeah, I mean that was an amazing experience for me to to be part of that. Um, unfortunately, they didn't offer me a contract at the end of it. I'm not still bitter about that. All the shot fans <laughs> at all. Um, uh, and then I went to um, from there. I went to Gray's Athletic again in the conference. Um, and it was about that time, towards the end of that season, that um, I got a call up from the Philippines. My mum's Filipino. My dad's English. Um, my mum was pestering me for years and years about kind of um, seeing if the Philippines had a team. And I kind of didn't really know if they did. So I just sent a, sent a letter off just to kind of keep my mum quiet, really. And, and and then about six months later, I had a reply. Um, and that was back in 2009. Um, I had a call from, <clears throat> excuse me, I had a call from the the, the, the president of the Philippine Fo- Football Federation at the time. i never forget it. I was in my car. And he said to me, um, we'd like you to be part of Philippine national team. We'd like you to come out. We've got a tournament coming up. So I was at Grays at the time, traveling from Oxfordshire down to Essex every day, um, doing the rat run on the M25. It was taking me two hours a day. And I, I wasn't particularly enjoying the football. Mm. Um, and yeah, I had a phone call from from the president of the, the Football Federation and said, if you want to come out, we've got a tournament coming up in the Maldives. So um it was a bit of a no-brainer, really, for me. <laughs> the M25 or the Maldives. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and then I kind of... Um, so I went out to that tournament um, and things were kind of on the up for the national team at the time. Um, we had quite a lot of players like myself that were European-born to Filipino mothers or the other way around. Um, and I, I kind of took the decision because it, how the Philippine, um, the international calendar works it doesn't like coincide with like normal FIFA windows mm-hmm. so I decided that I was gonna 
kind of doing it the wrong way around, really. People normally retire from um, international football to, to focus on their domestic careers, but I did it the other way. I kind of, you know, kind of decided to step away from um, the full-time football over here because I knew that I wouldn't be able to go and experience all the things I, I wanted to with the national team. Um, so I, I actually went back to Ascot United just to kind of keep myself ticking over. Um, and just then enjoyed from 2009 till till I retired um, fully from the game in 2016. Just enjoyed traveling the world with the Philippines and and traveling all around Asia and and just enjoying that part of my career. So that is a very quick whistle stop tour of my career, and and I, and I absolutely loved every second of it. Do you have a, a favourite club or a favourite, I don't know, fixture you played in possibly? Was there any kind of standout moments for you whilst you were playing your domestic career before you decided to go down the international route? Um, obviously, the, the, the title, winning t- title winning year at Aldershot was a great year. Um, getting, getting a lot of success there was, was you know, that um, Aldershot kind of fell out of the league and you know the whole um, where they went into kind of liquidation and, and and coming back up through the ranks and stuff and, and so that was nice to be part of that team that came back and got us back into the comfort um, back into the football league with a great bunch of boys there um, my, I mean my time at Wimbledon was I loved it um, going all the way through um, from schoolboy all the way through um, to to playing in the in the championship for for three or four years was was brilliant and you know we'd done it with a we had a young group we'd been through it we've been through thick and thin together through the whole youth team experience um and yeah I mean it's every boy's dream isn't it well every boy's and girl's dream nowadays to to try and become a professional footballer and I I was lucky enough to achieve that so that period in my career I just remember it really fondly um there were some down days of like there always is with football but you know, when you get to someone 41 now, so you look back at it and you think you kind of remember all the all the good bits that happened. And yeah, they, they were probably the standout moments in in um, in my domestic career, the, the championship winning team and then just generally making um, being involved in, in um, kind of making it through to be a professional and enjoying those experiences in the championship was amazing. Nice. And obviously you, you came home to Ascot. Do you think that would have potentially, or I say come, came home, like figuratively came home because obviously you hadn't played there before. But do you think that was always going to be an intention of yours, do you think? Or was that just because it coincided with the international? No, it was circumstance. Um, I, like I say, I didn't, I wasn't particularly enjoying my football at the time when I was at Grays. Um, I, I, I don't. I don't think I really realised until I look back now about how much not getting offered a contract at Aldershot actually affected me. Mm. Um, I felt very hard done by at the time, um, and I, my, um, so obviously the Philippine thing came along. I just wanted somewhere where I could play games, train every now and again. I mean, when I first joined the national team, we were away you know, six months of the year, really. Um, not in blo- in one block, but there'd be like two or three week camps here and there dotted throughout the year. So I was away a lot. So I needed a club that would um, be happy with me leaving, you know, missing that amount of game time. Had a couple of friends down there. You know, the pitch at Ascot United has always been perfect back before it was a 3G as it is now. Um, and it was just somewhere for me to kind of get match minutes, enjoy my football, went back and enjoyed my football. I mean, there wasn't too much pressure. 
um, on performances and stuff. And, I, I, you know, that was another, that was a nice time. It was essentially just going back and, and playing football with, with my mates, essentially, um, which was great again. So, yeah, that, I mean, that was nice. It was never my intention to do that. It, that's just kind of how it fell about. I think probably one of my mates just randomly said to me, Joe, do you fancy coming down and having a game? Um, and I said, yeah, all right. I don't think he actually thought that I was going to say yes, but it just <laughs> fell at the right time that I said yes. Fair enough. Do you, <clears throat> you mentioned how you weren't sh- sure, like, you, and until now you've not really acknowledged how much it affected you when you left. Do you think that's better now for players? Do you think it's dealt with better now? And do you think um, people are better looked after when things like that happens? Um, I can't speak for what the game's like now um, in, in the professional arena. Yeah. Um, so, it, uh, listen, it was, it, it's part of football. The rejection is part of football. Um, it's people's opinions. Um, and that's what football is. It's all about people's opinions. That's why there's so many pundits. That's why there's so many people down the pub talking about it every single week. And at that time, someone's opinion didn't marry mine. Um, so I, I can't really comment on what it's like nowadays when people get released. I imagine there's nothing... Um, that can really prepare you for, you know, it's never nice being told that you're not good enough, essentially. Mm. Um, it can be done with, with empathy. It can be done um, from a caring point of view, uh, from a player welfare point of view, but it's different people obviously deal with it differently. And, and I didn't think it affected me at the time. I thought, I thought it was like a, just, a, you know, a, I've been used to kind of um, looking for other clubs and, and, and trialing other clubs and things like that. So I was used to that side of things, but I think this one was the, almost the straw that broke the camel's back for me, but I didn't realize it at the time. It's not now until I look back and I think, yeah, that, that I think I was probably quite a difficult person to live with at the time. Um, but again, you don't, you don't see it when you, when you're living it day to day and um, kind of just took me, took me, took the maturity really as I got older to kind of really realize that. Mm, absolutely so international how did it feel that 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 first call up that you had like that must have been such an incredible moment for you when you you get that call and they tell you you're coming for your first cap this is your first fixture like in as an international player I mean it was it was uh, yeah it's it's everything that you expect it to be it was it was I had an opportunity to represent um you know, my mum's side of the family, all the family that I've got over in the Philippines. Um, you know, we all obviously used to vacation there quite a bit. Um, but I hadn't actually been back to the Philippines for about, um, I think it was about, it must have been about 10 years, 10, 11 years. Just because of how my football career was going you, you know, during the off season, you don't get too much time to be able to do that kind of stuff. So um, I hadn't been back and... Again, I'll never forget when we arrived, when I arrived in Manila, um, getting taken to like the PFF headquarters, the Philippine Football Federation headquarters um, in a a taxi and everything just felt really familiar. It felt really natural. There was obviously an excitement that, that was going along with that, but it just kind of felt like this is, this was the right thing to be doing at that point. Um, nothing can prepare you for um obviously playing in southeast asia is very different to how it was playing in down in essex or down in ascot united every week that getting used to that kind of side of things was 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 getting acclimatized to it was was difficult 
Um, but yeah, that getting used to the pitches and how how the organisation was there at, at the time back in two thousand nine was was a bit of a wake up call. Um, but again, we were it was it was another group of lads. There were a lot of there were about oh well, I would have said about a quarter of the team were kind of Filipino British lads as well. So it made things a lot easier. Um, Philippines, for those that haven't been, is um, um, a country that was um, very influenced by American culture. So a lot of people speak English there. So that wasn't a problem. The language barrier was not there, which I think really helped. Um, I understand bits of Filipino Tagalog, but I don't. I don't speak it myself. Mm-hmm. So, but so that made that transition easy. But yeah, the the first tournament I had over in the Maldives, um, the, the game didn't go according to plan. We we lost we lost five nil to Turkmenistan. Um, but I'll never forget. Yeah, I've got um, huge fond memories of that first first tournament. Even though, like I say, it didn't go quite according to plan. But the year after I joined. Um, 2000 and we joined into my made my debut in 2009 and then in 2010 um football in the country just it went nuts we 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 entered a tournament called the suzuki cup which is basically um like all the best teams in southeast asia so vietnam indonesia thailand those people um historically we were known as um you know the whipping boys of southeast asia at the time and then by by some kind of miracle, we got to the semi-final of that competition. Um, and then from that that point, football in the Philippines just went crazy. Um, we were we were celebrities walking around the country. Um, people, you know, posters on billboards and stuff like that. People wanting interviews. So that period from t- kind of 2010 to 2012, 2013 was just absolutely mental. And I just that was. You know, you asked me earlier about what's the best thing I've done in my career, my domestic career. By far, the best thing I've done in my career was being part of um, that period in in the Philippines. It was just, it was fun. Um, we were playing good football. We had a really good group of um, players. Um, it's just a really exciting time to be to be part of that. Do you feel like you embraced that celebrity, or do you think you stayed quite grounded? I, I get a, like a, quite a grounded vibe from you, Bob. So, like, did you? Uh, yeah. How was that experience? Uh, it was it was weird. It was it was totally totally bizarre. I mean, um, we, you know, to the to the, if you look at a normal kind of a a, um, a Filipino born Filipino to Filipino mum and dad, um, we look a lot of our team looked a little bit different, and and I think that was that was probably one of the main reasons that we kind of. Um, had so much attention at that time. Um, we were Filipino, but we looked a little bit different um, and we'd had success. Um, and it was, there were a couple of the boys, um, Phil and James, young husband, who were, who were part of um, Chelsea's academy and, and went out to the Philippines and kind of made a career out there. Um, I mean, they were like, you you couldn't they could not go to any shopping mall without getting mobbed it was it, it, there was a two-year period when it was absolutely insane um so and to be kind of mixed up in in that was it's just super surreal so you would i would go out um i would play for ascot one weekend fly out to the philippines the next weekend as soon as you land at the airport then people are talking to you knowing who you are you kind of live in that lifestyle for the two week camp that you're out there 
people screaming and honestly it was mental and then you get on the home get on the plane coming back home and land at Heathrow and no one knows who you are and it was quite nice so you it, it was fun that's why I say it was it was a fun time um it was surreal um but now the Philippines is, is kind of we were we were probably the catalyst to um some some continued success that the national team have had now the women's team have recently just qualified for the world cup which is is huge yeah fantastic. um yeah so it's just you know like, like to think i was i was part of that and uh at that time yeah absolutely do you feel like you've left maybe a little bit of a legacy is that a big word to use do you think um it is a big word but it that 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 point in 2010 when when everything changed like people refer to it as the miracle of hanoi because that's where the tournament was it was in vietnam Hmm. um and it was a footballing fairy tale that that point and and what that did that what you know we look back at it now we've a lot of the teams a lot of the players that were in the national team now um you know kind of took up football because of that um sponsorship came in money came in backers came in more money got pumped into the teams um there's now a professional league out in the philippines um, which has its troubles at the moment, but there is a professional league out there. Um, so from that one um, tournament and that period after 2010, um, a lot of things did change. So, um, yeah, it is a big word, legacy, but I do think that um, that moment at, at that time did lead to a lot of good things that have now now happening in Filipino football. And I'm I'm proud to have been part of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you you captain, weren't you? I was, yeah. Uh, 66, yeah. Cap, um, 66 caps I had and I was captain for probably the last two or three years of, of my time with the Philippines, yeah. What Again, uh, what was that moment like when they, was it was it a sort of like a, a casual conversation or was it a big thing when they, did they pull you into the office? Like, Rob, we've got something to talk to you about. How did that go down? Um, I can't actually remember how that, that came about. Um, <laughs> we... I was always, <laughs> I, throughout my career, I was not a person that, I'm not a highlight real player. So, I, you know, I wouldn't, I was a defender. I could, I could organise, um, I, I guess you would call me a leader at that point. You know, so I was, even though I didn't have the captain's armband, at other places I've been as well, I was, I was able to organise a team. Um, so I guess it was just a natural transition. Um, I, I kind of stood in for um the captain at the time as like a vice captain so if he went off the pitch then then I kind of took that mantle on um so yeah basically was good at blagging stuff and ordering people around so that's probably why they gave me um the captaincy and 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 again that was in that was in the Suzuki Cup I remember and um we had um that that tournament's like every two years so that would have probably been 2014 when I when I first became captain, um, and pride of place on my wall is is a uh, um, is a picture of me leading the team out in Manila, and I knew all my family were there um, in a semi final of that competition again, and that was yeah again for me that was a big deal. Um, just just ha- like I say, having the opportunity to represent my mum and and everything that she's done coming over to the UK and and, and representing. Um, all the family members over in the Philippines was 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 amazing, and t- to be the one that le- led the team out was even more special. 
Yeah, absolutely. It sounds incredible. So you mentioned like there was a sort of transition for you there from being um, just a, a player into a captain. When that transition that you went from then playing to coaching, how did that happen? At what point did you think, do you know what, I need to maybe take a step back from playing and actually I'm going to pursue something else? Well, again, it started at the Philippines, really. So towards the back end of my my playing days with the national team, I um, I used to help the the team, the federation. Um, I was almost like a European based consultant for the for the national team. Mm. Um, so I'd liaise with all the the other um, the other players that were European based, either in England or Germany or Norway, and help sort out certain things for for them and liaise with their clubs directly about you know. Um, international camps coming up. Um, I then took it upon myself to, I started doing some analysis into the, into the team, into our opposition. So then the coaching staff over there then gave me, um, allowed me to present um, opposition match reports um, to the players and, and, and video sessions that I clipped up. So even as I was still playing, I was starting to think about that kind of stuff. And it's, it's something that started to interest me because when I was playing, to be honest, I never really thought that I wanted to be a manager or a, or a coach. Mm. Um, I always thought to myself that when I'm kind of done playing football, that was going to be me done. Um, but yeah, I kind of tra- transitioned in, into it that way. Um, and then I, I, um, I got a knee injury towards the end of my career. Um, had to have an operation and things and then you kind of get to that age when I was 34 35 and it was just becoming too difficult um, to carry on playing and um, by that point I'd been involved in in um, stuff the other side of the of the white line in with um, with the Philippines and it yeah it really sparked my interest so I started doing my badges um, in my off time, in the time I was away from the Philippines. So when I kind of fully retired from from the national team and from football in general, um, I was already on that pathway to to becoming a coach then. And it was a nice, easy transition, to be honest. I, I Something that I enjoyed, I started just kind of uh, at like development centres um, just to try and gain as much experience as I could. Um, I then went and coached at Oxford University women's team. Um, I didn't, it wasn't a conscious thing for me to go into women's football. It was a job um, that was local. I live, I live in Oxfordshire. So it was a a job that was very local. I knew that I could kind of make mistakes there and not be put under too much pressure. Um, And it was just a great place for me to learn my trade. So I'd done that for two two seasons. And then in 2017, I think it would have been, that's when I joined with Reading um, as um, uh, uh, the under-16s coach of the RTC. Um, so it was just a nice transition in, in, into, into women's football. I already had that grounding, that background in um, women's football um, from a university point of view. And then, yeah, just kind of seamlessly transitioned then into, into my time at Reading. It's really interesting that you say that it wasn't a conscious decision to go into women's football, actually, because I think a lot of the time people are very kind of this is what I want to do. This is where this is the avenue I'm going for. So that I think that's really interesting that you didn't consciously choose women's football to begin with. I, I made a conscious effort at, right when I started coaching that I wanted to experience as many different um, coaching opportunities that I could. So I joined... I, I joined like an uh, like um, a development academy um, over in Bisham Abbey, 
um, and done some coaching there a couple of nights a week. I, um, I then, I went and helped out at a private school, which was kind of pure, purely grassroots working with, you know, they're, um, boys that were like 11, 12 years old, all the way down, a little bit younger than that, from, you know, boys that could play to boys that were part of the private school that didn't really have any interest in football. I wanted to expose myself what it'd be like to, to, to work with different ability age groups. Um, I That's why when the, the, the women's team came up, yes, it was local, but I thought, okay, let, let me expose myself to, to this to, to see what you know, women's football's like as well and see what traits I can pick up, you know, the differences between women's football and coaching men's football, boys' football. I I volunteered my services rather stupidly to um, my... I've got a daughter. I've got a daughter that's 10 and a son that's 8. But when my daughter was was a bit younger, like in class 2, I, I said to the, the school, would you like me to take some after-school football sessions? Because I just wanted to experience what it's like it's absolutely pandemonium um, trying to <laughs> trying to deal with um 30 odd um I think she would have been they would have been seven at the time six yeah seven at the time trying to organize that but all those kind of different experiences um you know I learned something from everyone um and I would encourage anyone that's kind of coming into um coaching now just go out there and 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 volunteer and expose yourself to you might want to get to um coaching at the elite level but go and expose yourself to as much as you possibly can because i I can guarantee that no no experience will will not be worth you know it'll all be worthwhile do you feel like you've got your own coaching philosophy or do you think it just is evolving every time you have this new experience? Do, do, I don't know, because obviously you've done lots of badges. You're a UEFA A license holder, aren't you, right now? Yeah. So do you feel like you've had that same philosophy since the day you started your badges or has it, I'm assuming it probably has evolved over time, but do you think there's been an influence from all of these different opportunities that you've had as well? Yeah, I mean, I've been... I've been living football now since I, I left school. I, I left at when I left at GCSE. After my GCSEs, I went straight into full time football from sixteen, and I've been involved in it ever since. So, you know, I've had um, a long time. I've been exposed to the game and, and learned a lot of things a, a, along the years. Some good and some bad. Um, how how to do things and how to not to do things. Um, in terms of my playing philosophy, it's. That kind of has remained pretty constant since I left. There's a certain way I like to, I see the game and I like to, I like it to be played. Um, but how we go about coaching that and um, the different things that we put in place, like football coaches, if anyone tells you they've had an original idea that it's nonsense, we, we just steal things from everyone else. We go around yeah. and, and see other coaches and we see... Um, Okay, I like how they're doing that. So maybe I'm going to see if that because that that can work with my group. Um, you know, we all read. Um, there's so many CPD events now. There's so many books available to us. Um, so that element of it has is definitely constantly evolving. Um, but I, my, my my playing philosophy, like my game model, if you like, um, that's remained pretty constant. I, I like I like um, you know I'm, I'm quite clear in how I like my teams to try and play. Mm. Okay, let's talk Reading Women then, in that case, or Reading Women Academy. Let's be specific about this. What is a sort of day-to-day like for an academy manager? Uh, well, no two days are the same. <laughs> um, so 
Um, for those that don't know, our, our girls, all our girls, all our players attend John Medeski Academy over in Reading. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we when we say Reading Academy, we mean um, girls that are post GCSE, so sixteen, predominantly sixteen to eighteen, so your A level years. Yeah. Underneath that, we have there's a the Reading RTC um, pathway which runs from twelves um, to sixteens to under 16s and then they from under 16s then they transition to us in the academy the academy then we then filter directly into our women's first team so we're the next port of call for our girls is is our women's first team um so all our girls educate at john medeski academy um we we're lucky with jma that they um the girls footballing timetable is intertwined into their academics Mm -hmm. um we you know, we place a lot of emphasis on the whole um, holistic development of the the individual, not just the player. So dual career is very, very important to us. Um, so the girls will um, do their education in the day. Um, and yeah, different days that we, we train at different times in, in different on, on different days. But yeah, we, we seven days a week, six days a week. Sorry, the girls will be training uh, with a game on a Wednesday. So tomorrow. Um, and yeah, it's 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 flat out for them. They have to juggle A levels. They have to juggle me and Liam, who's a fantastic um, um, coach that is full time with me at the academy. They have to deal with us barking at them and, and expecting certain standards. And they've got to deal with their A levels. And then they've got to go home and then have hopefully have a little bit of time to be a 16, 17, 18 year old girl as well. So, I mean, what they do is 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 amazing. Uh, the, the dedication that they show to wanting to be a footballer is is, is second to none. So it's just, again, it's, it's it's I see it as a privilege for for me and Liam to be able to be part of their developing journey, and, and hopefully we can maximise their potential at the end of the day. Do you feel like, as a coach, that you've seen a sort of um, a, a sort of trajectory of girls interested in becoming full full time footballers and seeing it as a career in the last couple of years? Because I guess maybe. 10 15 years ago it it wasn't really I I don't think you'd find many people who thought they could be a full-time footballer and it could be a a potential career path for them I mean you've only got to go down the park now or or go into like the school playground to see girls actually playing football to know how far the games come Mm. um you know and that's that's credit to to all the pioneers of women's football that are out there that have really pushed it um and the FA to to give them credit for really pushing the women's game. Um, we're seeing the, the 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 outcomes of that now. And you know, having been involved in the academy program now for since uh, twenty eighteen, since when I when I first joined, um, you can tell that there is a there is a movement now. It, it, it's a lot more. It's serious. You know, a lot of big teams are take, paying, um, putting big budgets into their academies. Um, there is there is more um, competition for academy places. There are more people coming to trials year on year. Um, there are more teams sprouting up. There are more um, like football programs, like community programs popping up all around at, at school level as well um, to compete. So just by sheer numbers, it is it's definitely increasing. The 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 um and the hunger for it is definitely there but you know what's something i'd really like to know like you're, you're not going to know the answer to this but um 
statistics are a little bit behind in terms of how how many people we know playing. So everyone's sort of clinging on to this 3.4 million women and girls playing, but that's a 2017 statistic. So I'd be very unsurprised if that wasn't at least double at this point, just because obviously we saw so much more interest happen because of the Women's World Cup, for example, in 2019. And obviously we've got the Euros coming this year. So, yeah, that would just be an interesting stat to know, I think. I wonder what you think about that as well. Yeah, I'd love to know the stats and I I completely agree. I mean, I think it's important to say that this isn't this movement isn't just based here in the UK. You, you've only mm. got to look at the, the stuff that's going on in the Philippines about how many more people are um, playing, how many more girls are playing football over in the Philippines now than, than they were when, when, I mean, there wasn't even, well, there was a, there, there was a women's team back in, back when I was playing. Um, but now for the, for them to have their moment in the sun and have their success going to the world cup is just going to be ginormous over there. So again, they're going to inspire another generation of, of, of player um, to see that you know playing football is a viable viable option, and it's not just uh, where where we are at JMA after we train on a after we get back from games on a Wednesday. Um, there's a lot going on on the JMA pitch, and there's a walking football group that mm. play on JMA, <clears throat> and I am astounded to to see it's not just your typical 60, 70 year old men playing football out there. It's half and half with women out there playing as well, enjoying enjoying football. Um, now, whether they came to the game late, whether they came to it, you know, whether they've always had a passion for it, I couldn't tell you that. But you, wherever you look now, there are more and more women playing football. And, and um, as a father to a 10-year-old daughter, um, it is this is everything that you hope for as a parent. Um, we're now growing up in a... Uh, my son, who is eight, who's, who's football mad, um, is growing up in an age now where um, women's football is on the telly all the time. Obviously, I watch a lot of women's football, so he's used to it being on the telly for us. Mm. But he he won't come in and say, oh, is it men's or women's play? And he said, oh, is it football on the telly, daddy? He said, yep, yeah. oh, can, can I just go and watch that? And that's just a normal thing, which which didn't happen when, when I was growing up. Um, so it is a very exciting time to be part of it, for sure. Um, and yeah, long may it continue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's scale it down. We went a bit international there. <laughs> we did a bit, <laughs> yeah. Went down to the academy. Um, I guess I'm maybe a little bit biased because I am a Reading fan myself. So, but I would argue that Reading women are probably the one of the best or the strongest uh, adverts for the success of academy talent. Um, you are obviously a little bit responsible for that. So, yeah. Um, just I think when you see, so even at the weekend, for example. Um, at the uh, Brighton game, which maybe we should say less about, if I'm honest. <laughs> um, yeah. But you let's just talk, the... let's talk about the few weeks before that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But you just well, in fact, not just the Brighton game, all of the games this season, where you look to the bench and you see that consistently, it is academy our academy girls that are on the bench for the first team. So yeah, just a little bit on that. Yeah, I mean that's. You know, ultimately, my job and me and Liam, our job at the academy is to is to get through girls through to our first team, and we um, we're very proud in in the fact that we we've done pretty well at that, um, and on and on a budget that's probably a lot more um, modest than than some other academies out there. Um, now, um, it, you, you're right that our, our women's first team, Kelly, does a great job of of making sure that the pathway's there for everyone. 
the opportunity is there um, for for all those players to go up and, and show what they can do. And when they get their opportunity, like Tia and Emma have done, um, then they, they make sure they go and take it. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, that's just, um, it, it, that's our job. That's what we get um, kind of judged on essentially. And it's nice to see that um, we are getting players through. Um, but, you know, I think over the, over the course of um, the four year period, so including this year's cohort, we've had about 42 players through our academy. Um, and I think the stat is something like just over 40%, 42% of all those girls have had involvement with the first team. Mm. Um, whether that be on the bench as like a supporting support for the first team or whether that is actually making appearances. So you forget, you go back to a couple of years ago when you had Sophie Quirk made her debut and, and um, Kira Skills, people like that as well, who are now applying their trade at, in the championship. Um, you know, it does show that there is a pathway there. Um, it it helps us recruit as well because we are at a catchment area where we've got Arsenal and Chelsea. Yeah. Um, Southampton also have a strong programme looking like they're coming up through. Mm. And whilst we don't have the facilities that some of those other academies do, what we can, pro- what we can say to the girls is, look, you know, we've got um, of... All the girls that have exited us, which are 29 now, 29 players, we've 50, I think it's just just under 60% of all the players that have been in our involved in our academy are now playing um, tier three minimum football at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we offer, not only do we offer a viable pathway through to our first team and to the WSL, we also set people up for, you know, tier two and tier three teams as well. And that's something that we're, we're incredibly pr- proud of. I think as well, obviously, we've talked about the trajectory that women's football on. I think um, tier three is just starting to get it, the recognition that it deserves because there's some incredible teams within that. And I think, um, well, I don't know. I'm, I'll ask you this question, actually. What do you think about expansion of leagues? I am very, I'm, I get a bit ranty about this on the podcast occasionally. I'm very pro expansion of the league. So I just think there's so much really incredible talent coming through at lower tiers down I think we we need to give them the opportunity to play higher up and yeah I I don't think right now it's kind of cutting it being just 12. (laughs) Yeah I don't I don't know what the right or wrong answer for that one is I I I know what I would say is um, within within probably tier three you do get some you know the top team there was a big divide in the Mm. quality amongst the teams now, whether that can be divided or whether that should be divided, that's that's a bit above my pay grade. All I know that it is, all I will say about that kind of level is, like you say, there are some really talented individuals down there. There are some excellent coaches. There are some excellent setups at that league. Um, and what it does do, you know, what, what, what people are realising now, especially in academy football, is the opportunity to dual sign some players. Yeah. Um, so they can go and get experience at playing women's football mm. at a competitive level yeah. um, whilst remaining on the books of, of um, you know, the academy as well. So um, more and more teams are looking to dual sign players out to the champ and, and, and tier three teams, which is a testament to, to how good the quality is in that league. Otherwise, we wouldn't be putting people down into those into those divisions. So, yeah, it's it's exciting at the top of the, the national south at the minute. Yeah. Um, and 
you know, I know the work that Liam does over in Oxford as well. It is, um, I know the kind of program they run out there. So it's, yeah, it's an, like, like you talk about, it's an exciting time for not just the WSL, not just the championship, but certainly down lower down the pyramid as well. Yeah, absolutely. What, um, or rather who do you think we should be keeping an eye out for in the academy? <laughs> well, T has obviously made a massive breakthrough, which has yeah, been, fantastic. been, been fantastic. She's, um, um someone that's come through a long way um all the way through the club as emma has um we've got some really talented players in the academy um whether whether our first team um they're going to be ready for that in the next couple of years i'm not sure yet Mm. um but you know you've got hannah porter who is who is training up with the with the first team regularly on the bench um we've got some really talented players down there that we're we're excited about a few we've got you know, we're currently recruiting for next year as well. Um, and it's exciting for us that even further down the pathway, all the way down to under 14s, um, there's some real, real talent coming through that pathway. Um, so, yes, it, it, it's this is where it gets a little bit scary for me and Liam because we need to make sure that we, we do maximise that player potential mm. um, and push them as hard as we can to, to try and exit out and be the next Tia, Bethan, Rhiannon, Stuart, Emma Harris, etc. Um, so, yeah, watch this space, really. Um, we, we'll see how, how the girls go. I like that. That makes me excited as a fan. <laughs> <laughs> um, the future for you, what does that look like? Do you think you'd like to continue in the academy system? Do you want to push a bit higher up? Do you want to go back kind of to the roots, go international, something with the Philippines? I don't know. I mean, I'm enjoying my foot. I'm enjoying my time at the Red at the moment. I'm really yeah. enjoying. Um, I enjoy um, player development. Um, I enjoy because I mean, it's people. People look at um, the academy system and think of all the players that exit out into our first team. That's obviously the the number one marker that everyone kind of points to. Mm-hmm. But there are people that have come through our academy that joined us. Um, as a, as a first year, as a 16, 17 year old. Um, and we know that they probably wouldn't end up exiting into our first team, but mm. they've gone on to amazing things. And it, I get just as much pride out of um, girls exit into a US college on a full scholarship. Um, I'm going to go and have an amazing time an amazing um, career over in America as I do, uh, you know, for Tia scoring, scoring her goals, <laughs> Um, as she has done for the first team that and and that's um you know I don't think that that can be underestimated how how important that that element is to to me and Liam to make sure we do help players realize their own individual potential and and you know seeing Sophie Quirk and, and Kira Skills doing well at, at um over at Charlton um and how they've matured and, and developed as, as individuals it gives us just as much pleasure as the girls that have exited into our first team so um I, I enjoy all those elements I, I I don't think our work is done at the moment mm. there I think we've still got a lot of growth and a lot of development to happen within the academy system I don't think it's perfect at the moment um I think there's there's some changes that can be to be made like wholesale across the board um and that's for the FA to kind of um to, to deal with um so it's just it's just an exciting industry to be involved in in general women's football and and player development is something that I really enjoy 
Um, I'm proud of I'm proud of what we've done, and and hopefully we can continue to kick on a little bit more and, and get some more players through and and get some more players out to be professional footballers. Amazing. I feel like that's a really good point for us to end on there. A little sort of watch this space uh, <laughs> part there. So yeah, Rob, thank you so much for joining me this evening. It's been a really, really great, really interesting chat with you. Perfect. No, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, not at all. Thank you. This episode of Berkshire Football Stories was hosted by Abby Ticehurst and featured special guest Rob Gear. It was cobbled together by Tom Canning. Our intro music is called Space Camp from the album Everyday Adventures by Reading's very own Rocky Kings, which you can find on Spotify and all good music outlets. Find Football in Berkshire on Twitter, Facebook and at footballinberkshire.co.uk. Creative Lifestyle Planning is proud to sponsor the award-winning Berkshire Football Stories podcast from Football in Berkshire. Creative Lifestyle Planning is a woking and based independent financial planning business who provide affordable, transparent financial planning for clients from all walks of life. Maybe you're saving for a property, planning for retirement or would just like to save some money in a tax-efficient manner. Drop them a line on 0330 118 0210. That's 0330-118-0210 for a free initial consultation and let them know Football in Berkshire sent you.